there's anticipation of something more. God's work with Israel is not finished. Yeah. That's that's clear whether you're you're reading the Hebrew Bible with Chronicles as the concluding book or whether you're reading it uh, in the Protestant Christian tradition with Malachi <laughs> as the concluding book. More is there is more to come. And Judaism has has reflected their instinct of this with the rabbinic literature. And with the subsequent literature that that uh, the Hebrew Bible generated for them, so even though they don't have a New Testament, they certainly have uh, subsequent traditions and literature that they that they see rounding out and bringing closure to an open-ended Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Christians, of course, have the New Testament, which functions in much the same way. But that's that's where we that's where we are at the end of the Old Testament. We are we are looking at something unfinished. Welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Bird. Today I sat down with Dr. Kevin Youngblood, professor of Old Testament at my alma mater, Harding University, and author of the highly praised commentary on Jonah and the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary on the Old Testament series. Kevin and I have known each other for a few years now, and I think it's fair to say that he has a gift for making the Old Testament seem less strange and more accessible. This episode of the podcast is the first in a new series where we'll take a book-by-book approach for most of the New Testament. It's my hope to take some of the best of what the Academy has to offer and help make that relatable for church audiences. To help us set the stage, though, I wanted to ask Kevin one simple but profound question. How does the Old Testament anticipate Jesus? Because the Old Testament is so strange and so remote from our normal experience, I think it's easy for many Christians to use the Old Testament like a buffet line. We so often pick out just the things we like and we leave the rest behind. The problem is, if we take the arrangement of the Christian Bible seriously, we can't leave all this other stuff out just because it's weird or uncomfortable. The Hebrew Old Testament ends with Chronicles, and in English, it ends with Malachi. And both endings leave something to be desired, or maybe finished. Youngblood thinks this is intentional, and I agree. The entire Old Testament story drives us to anticipate some final, decisive act of God, and that is where Jesus enters in. So, in this series on the New Testament, we will hear from a variety of scholars who represent a variety of church backgrounds and traditions. There will be points of agreement and disagreement, and and that's fine. As iron sharpens iron, so these scholars have sharpened me, and I hope they sharpen you as well. If you enjoyed this interview and think others may benefit from it, could I encourage you to like it and share it on your preferred social media platforms? If you haven't already, would you also consider subscribing to Faith in the Fold so you don't miss out on future episodes? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I am really excited because this is the first episode in a new kind of series that I'm doing on the New Testament, and I appreciate you joining us us today to start us off. Welcome to Faith in the Folds. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So you've been teaching at Harding for a few years now, and I know you were elsewhere before then. Help us get to know you a little bit. How long have you been teaching? What kinds of things do you... uh, do you, I would say, enjoy teaching that might give something away? <laughs> what kinds of things do you find yourself teaching the most? Uh, help us know kind of uh, kind of what you're up to uh, these days. 
Okay, well, I've been at Harding for 10 years now, believe it or not. It's gone by very, <laughs> has it very been quickly. 10 years? 10 years, <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? Yeah. So 10 years really? here. And then prior to this, I was at uh, Ohio Valley for one year. Mm-hmm. And then prior to that, I was at Fried Hardeman for almost five years. Okay. So full-time teaching, that would come to close to 16 years. Before right. that, I taught Hebrew for Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was finishing my dissertation there under Peter Gentry. So I was uh, his grad assistant and, and did some of the undergrad teaching for him, particularly when he's on sabbatical. Uh, he yeah. kind of left me his whole language load while he went wow. on sabbatical. And that happened okay. to coincide with my first year of, um, of strictly dissertation work. So that uh, if, I, if I count those, <laughs> if I count that year or so of teaching yeah. Hebrew, we're probably looking at about 17 and a half years or so, so far of teaching. Yeah. And it's, and it's just a piece of cake, right. To, to teach a full load and write a dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite a full load, but it was, it was certainly enough uh, along with parenting and, uh, and ministry work and being a husband and all that kind of thing. Yeah. All that combined was, was certainly more than enough. No but uh, I, I specialize in Old Testament, particularly in the, in the Greek Old Testament and the mm-hmm. Septuagint. That was really the, the focus. I really, I liked that a lot because it enabled me to remain current in both Hebrew and Greek linguistics, yeah. as well as Aramaic, Syriac. I had to learn Syriac pretty well. Okay. So uh, I appreciated the way it kept me in several different fields that I was really interested in, um, including New Testament. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, has, it has enabled me to cross over into the New Testament a good bit and to, particularly to to focus on certain issues related to the use of the Old Testament in the New. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's one of the reasons why the topic that you presented to me was of interest, because that is something that I've been uh, interested in and that I have found that the, that the Septuagint has been helpful mm. in giving me uh, a bit of a handle on. Uh, also, the intertestamental literature is something I've always been interested in, and mm-hmm. I've taught occasionally when there's been a, when there's been opportunity. I've uh, taught intertestamental literature, intertestamental history, pseudepigrapha, and apocrypha, and that's fascinating because that gets you right into that world of Second mm-hmm. Temple Judaism, where so much uh, interpretive work is being done on the Old Testament. That is just fascinating. It's yeah. it's so yeah. unlike what we do today. Mm-hmm. And it gives you such insight into what the New Testament seems to be doing with the old. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it was a really great intersection of a lot of my interests. So um, Old Testament, primarily, I teach Hebrew, I teach Greek. Occasionally, I might get to teach Aramaic. Uh, text classes, primarily in Old Testament, but I also teach apocalyptic literature, which gets me into Revelation. So mm-hmm. I do teach that. I'm teaching that right now, in fact, here at Harding oh, Daniel great. and Revelation. Yeah. Um, and I have taught a few other New Testament classes, but pretty, that's pretty ad hoc. My, my, my typical schedule is to teach Old Testament survey, Old Testament text classes. And then, of course, there's, a, there's an Old Testament seminar for our majors mm-hmm. uh, that I teach in rotation with some of our other OT specialists here. So right now I'm teaching that class, too, and we're doing the Psalms. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm a very interested in Hebrew poetry. I, I tend to gravitate towards the poetical books. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently writing a commentary on Lamentations for Zondervan. All right. Uh, and have already written one on Jonah for that same series. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's pretty much what's going on with me right now. Yeah. And I'll be sure to have a uh, have a link in the description below to um, 
for folks to be able to to find their volume on Jonah. It's yeah. at the it, Zondervan. Is it the Zondervan exegetical commentary on the Old Testament? Yes, yeah, Zikot. Zondervan Z-Cot. exegetical commentary on the Old Testament. Yeah. There's the there's the the written commentary, but there's also uh, video lectures on it as well in the okay. Master's lecture series. So okay, cool. That's available too. Yeah, yeah. I'll be sure to put all that in the in the description below. That's um. I love how you mentioned the intertestamental literature because um, on Sunday evenings I have um, I've been teaching a, a Zoom Bible class for our uh, church down here in Corpus Christi, and we've actually been going over the Apostolic Father. So not in the middle of the Testaments, but immediately after the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And there, there somebody was asking me a question about about angels the other day. <laughs> angels are a perennial topic of interest, right? <laughs> somebody was asking me a question about angels the other day i was like well okay um part of the reason why they probably thought this was um there's this book that was written between the old and new testament called first enoch now it wasn't actually written by enoch but then i had to go through the whole thing and explain this whole series of enoch it's like maybe that is something that i should teach teach a church audience which was feels kind of weird but it would actually make some sense because it does exactly like what you said, where we have this opportunity to see some developments from the Old Testament, right? Yeah, that it fills in some gaps. It yes. definitely fills in some gaps. Yeah. It really does. It really helps us understand. It. And like we could just look at the New Testament and realize we are missing some things because yes. there's not yeah. a synagogue to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. Right. When we come over and here. The, the New, New Testament, Testament is assuming a lot of these traditions that accrued mm-hmm. in this intertestamental period. Um, it was a very furtive period of activity. And, we, you know, it, we, we wrongly call it the silent years. Oh, right. Yeah. They were anything but silent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, it wasn't maybe it wasn't canonical, but it was certainly um, a time of great theological advance and mm-hmm. speculation and, and literature that is really quite helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it, it would be fun to do a series on some things like that. I don't know. Maybe maybe we can. uh maybe between the semesters or in the summer or something like that, maybe we can sit down and, and work through a couple of these. Um, I'm not going to commit you to anything, but uh, well, I'd, love that. First. I'd love that if we can make it work. Yeah. It'd be a lot of fun. And, and, you know, honestly, if we could snag uh, maybe another folk, uh, another person or two in, uh, in here, that would be, that could be a lot of fun. Just to kind of talk through some of these things from a, from an academic standpoint, a ministry standpoint. I don't know. We're brainstorming here, but, we're not here to talk about the intertestamental period. We are here to talk about the Old Testamental period. Right. Um, I, in, in order to start off this series on the New Testament, like in, in what I've mentioned to some other folks that I've interviewed, I'm, I'm really hoping to be able to take some of the best of what, um, of what scholars and, and teachers have to offer in a classroom setting. And I'm helping to try to translate that or distill that for, uh, for a church audience. Sometimes uh, folks are really good at being able to have one foot in the academy and one foot in the church, so to speak. Other times it, it's left up to, well, you know, preachers and ministers to be able to kind of take what's really good over here and, and translate it. And, and that's what I'm wanting to do with this series. So it just makes sense to start off a series on the New Testament with the Old Testament, because like you mentioned, there's so much that has happened, we've got to be able to bridge the gap somewhere. If we just start with Jesus, Jesus, Jesus can get us where we need to go, but to really understand Jesus to the depth and the degree 
that um, that his earliest followers and especially his biographers and uh, some of these other folks understood him. I was wanting to dig into the Old Testament with you a little bit. And so I appreciate you joining us today to be able to do that. Um, the broad question I pitched to you is this. How does the Old Testament anticipate Jesus? That's a huge question. And we really could spend hours and hours on that. Sure. But just at, at kind of a survey level, help us sort of walk through this notion of, you know, are there certain themes that we see in the Old Testament that aren't right. resolved? Right. Are there certain promises that have some degree of fulfillment, but maybe experience greater fulfillment yes. than Jesus? Can you, as broad as it is, can you run with that for us uh, for well, a little a, bit? That's where you have to start, obviously, mm -hmm. is you have to start with that question. Because the New Testament certainly is assuming that the Old Testament does. Yeah, absolutely. It prepares yeah. the way in some sense. It anticipates a, a climactic, redemptive activity on Yahweh's part mm -hmm. that, that uh, crystallizes and focuses in something very specific. And yeah. you get the sense that the Old Testament is driving towards something like that. Mm -hmm. But there are better and there are worse ways of understanding the relationship. Okay, yeah. And when it, particularly when it comes to uh, the way the Old Testament paves the ground for the coming of Christ. Um, Christians have sometimes been a little bit careless and hasty mm -hmm. in drawing associations. Uh, and of course, you know, we, we could go back to the early church fathers and we can and we can kind of parcel out some that were that were allegorical in the way they saw connections. And, yeah. And that uh, that that saw connections that today we might kind of hmm. You know, not not so much. Yeah. And even in even their approach to prophecy mm -hmm. might be considered a little problematic today. Now, yeah. of course, they were they were viewing prophecy as a as a polemic for Christianity. They they saw the fulfillment of prophecy as a as a as an ace in the hole mm -hmm. for Jesus Christ and for their their preaching of the gospel. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. And I think maybe in some broad terms, that's not that's not a bad idea. But in some of the specific prophecies they saw, where they drew a, a direct line from the prophecy to Jesus as the one and only fulfillment, it, these days that seems not so tenable. Sure. Yeah. As we've come to understand more and more about what's really going on in this prophetic literature and so forth. So I like to think about the way the Old Testament anticipates Christ in terms of some uh, broad trajectories, mm -hmm. rather than saying, here's, here's a text and here's a text or here's a prophecy. I think there's there's a general flow of the whole, of the Old Testament yeah. that uh, that creates space for God to do something, uh, and as we move through the Old Testament, that what needs to be done becomes increasingly clear, mm -hmm. and what it would take to do it becomes increasingly clear. Yeah. So here's here are a couple of examples uh, that that I see that I think really start preparing. Uh, the reader of the Bible say yeah. for what God ultimately does in Jesus of Nazareth. Before you get cross. into that, uh, I, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. Before you get into that, uh, just for the sake of the audience, to have kind of a clear picture of how you might want to be very cautious with texts that have kind of a you know a, a singular fulfillment in Jesus. We could right. take Isaiah chapter seven. That's for, a very good one. Yeah. For example, and I, I'm not going to steal your thunder, am I? No, no, that's fine. No. Okay, yeah. So you can take Isaiah chapter seven, the the prophecy of the child named Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. 
I've presented this to a church audience before, and, and they were pretty receptive. That, that made sense. It's like, you know, Matthew isn't looking at that thinking, okay, and I, Isaiah isn't presenting that like this. So let, let's start with Isaiah first. Isaiah isn't presenting this prophecy of, of this child named Emmanuel and, uh, in chapter 7 there. He isn't saying, Israel, don't worry about these neighbors that are bothering you because 700 years from now, the Messiah will be born. But that is how it is so often read as if Jesus is the only fulfillment of that. And is that an example of how you're wanting to say? Exactly. That's, maybe... that's, that's, that, that's, the, that's the textbook case. That's, yeah. Because okay. that's the clearest example, really. Yeah. Because, you see, for most, Christ, most Christians don't have the familiarity with the original context of Isaiah like they do Matthew. Mm -hmm. And so their, their, their entry point to Isaiah is Matthew. Mm, okay yeah yeah and so what happens is they say oh matt matthew is saying that this prophecy is fulfilled here and they don't they, they haven't really thought carefully about what matthew even means by fulfilled because that's a pattern in matthew that's mm -hmm. like a formula for him yeah. yeah so but but we've always kind of looked at each of those individually and not as a set right when you yeah. look at them as a set and you're matthew is is developing something here and so what he means by fulfilled may not be what we think he means. You keep using that word. <laughs> look at Matthew's pattern of using that term yeah. and what he means by it. Then you go, oh, right. Yeah. But if you're looking at, yeah, if you're looking at Isaiah, Isaiah is, he clearly has to be referring to a child that, that will be born within Ahaz's lifetime because yeah. the child is supposed to be assigned to Ahaz. Right. Uh, and so yeah. you, you begin to realize that this child that Isaiah is talking about is not a direct prediction of Jesus, but this child is a type of what Jesus will come and, and do in spades, what Jesus yeah. will come and do in an even grand, on an even grander scale. Yeah, yeah. So it's, that, it's this idea of how that uh, it's, it's what, what some scholars call typical messianism. Mm -hmm. You have these Old Testament figures whose activity and function and role anticipate Christ. Yeah. And more mm -hmm. often than not, that's how prophecy is laying the groundwork and moving us in the direction of, of the climactic redemptive activity of God in Christ. It's by means of these preliminary figures who are who meet the immediate need, but don't meet the ultimate need. Mm -hmm. The ultimate need is still out there, and we sense that there's a remainder left. Yeah. Who's going to who's going to wipe it up? Who's going to take care of the of the uh, the bigger issue? But they they give us a, a picture of how God is going to do this. Mm -hmm. So that that's a great example of that. In an episode that will debut later than this one, Ben Witherington does a good job of showing how the the book of Hebrews, the book to the Hebrews, um, which he I, I think correctly describes as a sermon or a homily. Yeah, uh, rather that's than a, a letter. Pretty, per pretty se. common. Yeah, John identification. Um, yeah, he he he, uh, he is absolutely right to argue that basically this this type of fulfillment or this uh, a, a, one of the technical ways to describe this uh, is typological. Uh, yeah. or I think you mentioned typical. Um, but that that helps us make sense of Hebrews because that's exactly yeah. how the authors of Hebrews is seeing is like okay, well we've got all these patterns here in the Old Testament, um, and, and they did their jobs well. But ultimately, you know, there, there needs to be a greater fulfillment 
and we find that in Jesus, who's yeah. better than angels, better than Moses. He's a he's a priestly figure haha, in the order of Melchizedek because he doesn't get that lineage uh, physically, but spiritually, absolutely, he does. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's like, and so I I think for, for those who are paying attention here, don't miss uh, Ben Witherington's episode on Hebrews because that yeah. deal we do a lot with that kind of stuff there. Uh, and right. the in an upcoming episode with Jonathan Pennington. On Matthew, we absolutely get into this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Isaiah seven is a good test case, right? I think you said exactly. maybe the classic or the you know the, the most common test case. Right. Uh, what are some other ones that you, maybe we can look at f- from the beginning? Right? Could we go? Could we go to Genesis and say, you know, sure. are, are there some ways there in which the Old Testament you know anticipates Jesus that um, that we don't see? totally fulfilled or fully fulfilled in the old testament and we have to await jesus's uh, arrival and ascension etc sure sure well you know we have two creation accounts in genesis so let's just take each of those in turn and see how that each of them offers us something that certainly finds its culmination in jesus mm-hmm. so in the first creation account in genesis one the climax is the is the creation of humanity in the image of god yeah Right now, this 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 idea of the image of God, it's uh, it's it's remarkable how infrequently it comes up in the Old Testament. It's not something that yeah. we keep that we keep coming back to, but the New Testament really seizes on it and uh, uses it quite a few times, mm-hmm. particularly in reference to Jesus as the as the um, preeminent image of God, as the oh, perfect yeah. image of God. So, you know, the, um, the idea that, that Jesus comes to restore us to true humanity, the idea that Jesus, Jesus comes to uh, remind us of what God originally had in mind for us in terms of a loving dominion over creation, mm-hmm. that, that covers a lot of what Jesus means by kingdom. And that covers a lot of what Jesus is doing in his miracles, right? He's, he's exercising dominion over the created order. Uh, not uniquely as God, but precisely as human. So, for example, when he walks on the water, um, he invites Peter to join him. Because this is not something that is supposed to be exclusively his prerogative. Mm-hmm. So this is something he invites humanity to come back to, to, to be restored to, yeah. to a mastery of the world that God had intended for them from the beginning. This is what it means to be the image of God. So you can think of the image of God in Genesis one as a as a as a powerful uh, powerful point that the New Testament will pick up on and will use as a lens for understanding who Jesus is and what He's doing and how He's related not only to Israel but to all humanity. Yeah, is it fair so that, to think helpful. of? I, sorry to interrupt. No. Uh, is it fair to think of this idea of being created in the image of God as a commissioned representative of God. Yes. Yes. Actually, you know, if, if you're, if you're thinking about the way Genesis one as a whole is structured in it's ancient Near Eastern setting, it's presenting the cosmos as a kind of temple that Yahweh is about to inhabit. Okay. And it follows, it follows the general uh, procedures of, of uh, dedicatory texts of temples that we know of from ancient Greece. So for example, the seven day schema mm-hmm. of Genesis one 
as a typical period of time for dedicating a temple. Okay. Yeah. So you can see how there's a lot of it. We miss it because we're not familiar with, with yeah. the associations, but you don't just build the temple. Person, and jump Israelite, in there. Right. They're thinking this is about a temple. Yeah. Okay. So the cosmos is, is being prepared to function as a temple for Yahweh's habitation where he can commune with his creatures. So the, uh, the final act of preparing a temple for cultic use is the installation of the deity's image. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what happens here is God creates humankind to be his idol, to be his image, and then he mm -hmm. installs humanity in the cosmic temple, and that, that represents his presence on earth. Now, not that God won't be present, he will, but he'll be present in an invisible way. But God also wishes to have a visible presence. So his visible presence of his invisible reality is humankind. And, and Jesus comes and fills that function. Interestingly, of course, Jesus not only fills that function, but he fills the function of the temple itself as well. Right. So you've got both going on in the New Testament there. But particularly the image of God, I think, is easier for us to relate to. To help kind of folks who might not be familiar with, uh, with the Hebrew or Greek behind this word image, Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Hebrew and also the Greek, uh, Greek term in the Septuagint are often translated as, as idol. Is that, is that right? In other texts. In, in yeah, other like, texts, right. Not yeah. here in Genesis, uh, in right, Genesis for, 1. Yeah. But for elsewhere. Example, right. The Hebrew word selim, the Hebrew word is selim, mm -hmm. and it's, it's used in other contexts uh, of idols. And, of course, the Greek word is ekon. Mm -hmm. Well, we get our word icon from. Yeah, I was. Uh, I'm trying to pull it up. I've got a. I've got my Septuagint here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Image icon. And so you've got that. You've got that kind of. And yes, in, in other contexts, that that does uh, that can refer to idols. But it raises an interesting point, just as kind of a sideline, that God's prohibition against idolatry is not because God does not have an image. It's because He does, mm -hmm. and you're it. Yeah. And so you're not permitted to um, to dodge that bullet. Right. By creating something else and calling that the image of God. We are we are called not to make images of God. We are called to be the image of God. Mm -hmm. And and Christ in particular uh, reminds us of that in the most powerful way. Yeah. By fully exemplifying what that means. Yeah. And so in this sense, then we could even see really page one of the Bible. Right. You know. There is an, um, if not an anticipation, but you know, when we see Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as it flesh out, uh, we see that what humans were supposed to do, they ended up um, royally messing up, yep. uh, bringing on a curse. And then, as you've mentioned, Jesus really helps remind us and helps bring us, uh, helps break the power of that curse yes. by doing the kinds of things that humanity would have been doing or should have been doing uh, all along. Is that, exactly. is that a pretty good summary? Of exactly. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. And then when you move to Genesis 2 and 3, the second creation account, this, uh, this, this humanity is further differentiated as male and female further mm -hmm. differentiated as adam and eve 
And of course, um, the New Testament's understanding of Jesus as a new Adam is well known. But I, I would argue it's not just in those places where he's explicitly referred to as the new Adam, or I, mm. I prefer to say the last Adam. Yeah, that's fair. I don't like to say the second Adam because I think there's a lot of Adamic figures throughout the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So he's not the second, but he is the last. He is the he is the final Adam. Yeah. Uh, the the perfect Adam. So, you know, Paul, of course, uses this uh, explicitly in Romans five and in first Corinthians 15. Those are the only two places where you see it explicitly. But I think you see it in a lot of other places implicitly. So I think, for example, of Mark's very odd version of the temptation story, very abbreviated, basically non-existent, says, right? Right. Well, he says he was in the he was in the wilderness, mm -hmm. and he was uh, surrounded by wild beasts, and angels attended to him. And it's just it's very very brief, right? You don't get the three temptations like you do in Matthew and Luke. And I, I can't help but see in that a kind of Adam Christology, because mm. here is here is Jesus. He's uh, he's like Adam, surrounded by the animals. He's living in harmony with them. He's exercising mastery over them. So I think it just kind of rem it reminds me of, of Adam. And you just see this in a lot of other places as well, where Jesus uh, does things, performs functions that are reminiscent of the role God gave to Adam. So you don't have to look only at those texts where there's an explicit connection made with Adam. I think there are other places in the New Testament where Jesus is fulfilling an Adamic role yeah. or fulfilling yeah. what some might even call an Adamic covenant. Mm -hmm. Luke, Luke's genealogy brings out that connection. It does. Yeah. More strongly as well. Yeah. yeah. Matthew yeah, trying to do he something takes, different. He takes it all the way back to Adam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. And Another so Jesus here... Okay, yeah, go, ahead. No, go uh, ahead. So Jesus here is um, is really helping helping us to see, you know, what um, really really what it should have been like all along to be the image, to be the commissioned representative, to be the the installed um, loving ruler, right of uh, of this domain. Which, uh, which, in, I, I think you mentioned. Uh, I think the phrase you said was "loving dominion." Which, if there was a way to describe how Jesus ushered in the, the dominion, the kingdom of God, I mean, yeah, what, what better way is there than that? Yeah. Uh, what about the curse in uh, in Genesis three? Is is there something in there that uh, that we see most uh, appropriately for, or best fulfilled uh, by Jesus? Well, yeah, you know, Genesis three fifteen became uh, a touch point in early Christianity, so much so that it even acquired its own name, the Proto-Evangelium, mm -hmm. right? This idea of the first, the first rendition of the gospel or the first hint of the gospel comes in this, in this statement that Yahweh makes to the serpent when he says, I'll put hostility between your offspring and the woman's offspring. Uh, he will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head yeah. kind of idea, yeah. right? which seems to launch a, a, a very long trajectory of warfare between whatever the offspring of the serpent is, whatever mm -hmm. we understand that to be, and humanity, the offspring of the woman, which would be humanity, right? Yeah. But culminating ultimately in Jesus, mm -hmm. who on our behalf 
wins the decisive battle yeah. uh, with the, uh, the forces of evil that seem to be uh, represented by this serpent, which is pretty clearly a symbolic figure in the garden for the forces of chaos and death. And that's certainly the way the serpent functions. Mm -hmm. So all those forces of chaos and death, whatever manifestation they take, they ultimately meet their match in Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. And especially ultimately in his death on the cross, mm -hmm. where he disarms them and defeats them in a very surprising and counterintuitive way. So, yeah. you know, the, the early church was was brilliant, really, in its uh, recognition of, of those two touch points and how they connect. And even though sometimes we tend to bring them together a little too quickly without connecting all the dots, mm -hmm. I do think it's right to see that trajectory. In fact, the New Testament, in some places, is already hinting at that, right? Like even in Romans 16, Paul makes this really interesting kind of cryptic statement the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, mm. which sounds like an allusion to Genesis 3.15. Yeah. Certainly, John in Revelation picks, yeah. picks this up and he identifies Satan with the serpent and yeah. demonstrates uh, his defeat. So you've got, that, you've got that already going on in the New Testament, and the church really took that and ran with it, mm. um, I think, to great effect. Uh, yeah. it, it makes a good point. So I think I think the Protoevangelium is a good place to go to see that uh, something something really huge is addressed here that you never sense is fully wrapped up in the Old Testament by any means. I, and that's really the point that I wanted us to to get to, at least with this conversation of uh, from Genesis one, two and three, is that you don't you just don't see this wrapped up in any satisfying way. Um, it's, it's really hard to, to read through the Old Testament and think, okay, yeah, they nailed it. <laughs> they got it. They, um, yeah. you know, they, what more is there to do? The, 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 the serpent's head is crushed. I mean, it's really hard to read through there and, and, f and f feel as if this promise has been fulfilled. In any kind of satisfying way. Yeah. 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 So as we move through Genesis, we come to a promise uh, made to a guy named uh, Abram, which is renamed Abraham. Yeah. And again, we see how um, we see how God has made a promise to him that is experiencing some degree of fulfillment right through through the old testament we see abraham's family grow but it mm -hmm. like we we're saying just a minute ago you can you, you can't read this story really genesis 12 through malachi you can't read the rest of the story and think yeah this family is as numerous as the uh, sand on the shore and uh, and they have blessed the nations and right. So what's uh, the like, promise is so big. It is. And and yet it it feels like it's kind of hanging there in the end. Something that Jonathan Pennington yeah. uh, will make clear in our episode on on um, on the Gospel of Matthew is that, um, yes, Matthew really, really drives home this notion that Jesus serves as a new and greater Moses figure. But he also argues that um, that Jesus really serves as a, as a, a a son of Abraham, 
and sort of and and it kind of brings this notion home a little bit for where yeah the fulfillment of these promises to abraham are found in jesus yeah can we talk about that for a little yeah. bit well yeah yeah well you know i i i have always believed that there's a very strong relationship between the abrahamic covenant and the davidic covenant mm-hmm. and i think the new testament brings these together very well okay. when it is explaining how jesus is tying the two together and fulfilling them both but if you'll notice the abrahamic the abrahamic promises the abrahamic covenant keeps expanding even within just the abraham story mm-hmm. so god repeats this promise to abraham on a number of occasions when Abraham's faith seems to need additional support. And with every repetition, there seems to be something new, some expansion. And on one occasion, he even says, kings will come from your loins. So um, already in the Abrahamic promise, Mm -hmm. Abraham is is being reassured that there's more here than just a multitude of descendants. There are descendants that will occupy very significant roles. Yeah, uh, kingly roles. So yeah. I think you're anticipating David there. And I think the Davidic covenant really is kind of a, a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant because it's a it's a land grant covenant. Right. The way the Abrahamic covenant is, it's, it's very different from Sinai. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant are very similar in that God is doing all the all the committing and requires very little in response on the part of the covenant partner. Yeah. And it involves, it entails in both cases, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to give you this land. And it keeps expanding until it's the whole world. I mean, Psalm 2 already seems to anticipate that what God is ultimately going to give to the Davidic descendant, which is also the Abrahamic descendant, mm-hmm. is not just Dan to Beersheba, mm-hmm. the Mediterranean to the, the Transjordan area. It's the whole world. Yeah. Ask of me and the nations will be your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. So we, the Old Testament is expanding this promise all the way through. And so when, when Jesus comes and he begins to reiterate the promise in much more global terms, we've been well prepared for that if we've been paying attention. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't know that I hadn't noticed. Or if I had, maybe I, I just hadn't had it considered had considered it like, a, a gradual expansion of the promise. Fascinating that yeah. the the promise is expanded upon, right? It's not trimmed back. It's like, y'all, God's not saying y'all have continued to mess this up. So I'm going to trim back. I'm going to trim right. back what I promised you initially. It's yeah, okay. Right. We, well, it's not only ready. not only will I do what I've said, I'll do more. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's it's kind of like it's kind of like parallelism, right? That really puts into perspective statements from Paul. We are word, you know. Blessed be the God who you can do it far exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. We've yeah. already seen that kind of stuff, but in an Old Testament yeah. perspective. Yeah. That's uh, I like that. That, that really brings home some, uh, some depth there uh, to Paul. Who knew that reading the Old Testament would help, help you understand Paul better? <laughs> <laughs> uh, reading yeah. the Septuagint, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we've got, um, I, 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 I think we could, probably touch on moses i mean it would make sense to touch on moses uh, oh definitely uh, for a moment uh and then maybe we could get into uh some of the prophets and the and the psalms a little bit um moses's statement there near the end of his life um 
uh, you know, a, a, a prophet like me will arise. I mean, that that obviously hints at hints at something, but I, I think we could maybe go back to Sinai and and ask, you know, God is doing something particular with Moses on Sinai. It uh, it appears that Jesus, in another way, is is doing something similar, at least in Matthew five through seven. Uh, what are maybe some connections that that we can draw here? Um, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Sinai because this this gets us back to one of those those broad trajectories the Old Testament is developing that I think really is a framework for understanding how it anticipates Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, God does something at Sinai that is going to become typical of Yahweh. He descends. He comes down. He comes down first on the peak of the mountain, mm-hmm. and Moses, of course, goes back and forth. To mediate between Yahweh and Israel, book of Exodus, Yahweh descends the mountain and he fills the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And what we see here is Yahweh sets a precedent that Yahweh will always come to us. We will not have to go to Him. In fact, He prohibits Israel from even touching Sinai, much yeah. less climbing it. Right. I think this is interesting because uh, Yahweh seems to be contrasting Sinai here with Babel. Sinai is no Babel. You don't mm-hmm. climb it. You don't climb Sinai to get up to me. So I know it sounds harsh when one of the first commands Israel ever hears out of God's mouth is, don't touch my mountain. If you touch <laughs> right. my mountain, you'll die. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's not a great first impression mm-hmm. for God to make. But I think what God is really saying there is, stay where you are. I'm coming to you. And sure enough, he does. He comes and he fills the tabernacle and then he lives in their very midst and he guides them through the wilderness in this way. Mm-hmm. So God, God kind of sets this precedent of coming to his people. He meets them where they are. So he does that at Sinai. He does that in Jesus. And he does that yet again at Pentecost. He is forever coming down. Yeah. He's yeah. Never, he never brings us up to him he comes down to us yeah. and lives with us oh, so that that's a that's a broad way in which the old testament is kind of preparing us and even in revelation the new jerusalem descends yeah. from heaven yeah right so god is coming to us yet again yeah yeah that's he, where i was gonna go yeah. yeah revelation 21 um which picks up on promises from isaiah 65 and 66 exactly right this uh oh wow that is um and, and that that makes uh, I mean you see you see that downward movement in Philippians too, right? This beautiful Christological passage that um, uh, that uh, you know in in a later episode that will debut after this episode debuts, but I haven't recorded it yet, so I'm not exactly sure how Nijay Gupta is going to talk about this. But he um, he's got an episode on Philippians, and he calls it an ode to Christ in verses uh, Philippians two six through eleven there. Um, you very much see again the same downward movement. Yes, that uh, yeah, you've definitely. been describing. Yeah, that's that's consistent, and that's not just Jesus. That's Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Je- uh, Jesus only does what He has seen the Father do already, and the Father has come to us. Yeah, that's all. That precedent is already established in the Old Testament. I, I really insist on that. I, I make a big point of that when I teach Old Testament theology, is that Yahweh has prepared us well to stay put and let him come to us. Mm-hmm. This is why Babel is a bad idea. 
I'm I'm glad you mentioned Bamblegan because I was going to ask you to to return to that. Was that a common? I, I didn't I didn't prepare you for this uh, question, right. but we're, we're riffing here. So was yeah. that a was that a common notion in the ancient world of trying for uh, of individuals or, or or races trying to initiate on their own accord some some greater connection with their God by really by forcing forcing the God's hand or, 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 or something along those oh, lines. Yeah, definitely. Uh, of course, Babel is a ziggurat. Yeah. Uh, an ancient, uh, ancient near Eastern temple. Right. Right. A yeah. ziggurat is basically a man-made sacred mountain. Yeah. So you're, what That's you're it. doing is you're making, you're making a sacred mountain and you are building a sanctuary at the top. Uh, where the gods are obliged to meet with you. But there's a staircase that goes up to it that you climb, you climb up there mm -hmm. and you, you get your audience with the gods. It's, you know, virtually guaranteed. Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's divination in general is about manipulating the spiritual realm. Yes. I've mentioned this uh, before. Right. Um, Corpus Christi is kind of a weird mix of cultures and something that, I don't know how this happened, but after we moved down here last year, uh, last August, there were a couple of things that were mentioned where it it was a it was helpful for me to explain to either some of the staff members or some of the folks at church. Okay, here's what ancient views of magic are like. Now I mentioned Corpus Christi because you know this mix of culture, um, magic and uh, and divination and spiritualism and things like that that runs. Uh, there's a pretty strong current of that in Mexican culture mm. and we're three hours away from Mexico. And so there's, there's a lot of overlap, even for folks who were born maybe in South Texas or in the part of Texas called the Valley, they still have a Mexican cultural influence despite you know, having been born here in Texas. And a number of times this last year, I've had to explain to folks exactly what you just said that you described it divination, not, not the same thing, but related to that. Is this ancient practice of magic? Very related, yeah. I, I know Greco-Roman magic a little bit better just because my emphasis is in New Testament, but the idea is the persuasion or coercion of spiritual entities to do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. And you can do that through incantations, um, you know, certain you know, plants and, and roots and mixing things and, and things like that. And uh, actually, some of this intertestamental literature that we uh, talked about earlier, uh, First Enoch, goes into some of how some of the sins of the angels who rebelled was that they taught humans they how taught to humanity, do these divination. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they taught them how to yeah. do these kinds of things. Right. And so the purpose of one who would descend the staircase of this ziggurat right. to um, to meet with their god they would go up there and perform certain ceremonies, right? That, yeah. like you said, would oblige the God to come and meet with them. And there is a, there's an implicit, a clear but implicit prohibition that you are not going to treat Yahweh this way. Exactly. Yahweh, right. Yahweh will not suffer to be treated this way. Right. Deuteronomy 18 is just one good example of how prophecy is, um, uh, is supposed to function in Israel as a substitute for most forms of divination. Mm. So uh, Israel is very, very limited into what she can do in terms of divination. She's allowed to cast lots. Right. Yeah. 
prophecy is permitted, which some would include in divination. All, but but and in neither of those cases do they function in the typical way that you would yeah. think of ancient Near Eastern divination. They're not coercing Yahweh to do these things. Right. And the reason why is because unlike the rest of the ancient Near Eastern world, where they understood there to be this great symbiosis between humanity and the gods, Israel rejected that idea. There was no great symbiosis. So Israel introduces this unique uh, groundbreaking idea of, of the aseity of God, uh, this radical independence. God, God is independent of his creation, yeah. intimately yeah. involved, but not because he has to be. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he wants to be, he desires to be. And so you, you get this sense of unconditional love now that you could not have had uh, otherwise yeah. because God would have needed something from us. I think right. even, even the message of the burning bush, the fact that the fire doesn't need the bush, the fire doesn't consume it. It doesn't draw its energy, energy from the that's bush. Cool. The fire is independent of the bush. Yeah, That's why, that's why the bush can remain intact it's because the fire, the fire burns on its own. Yeah, It doesn't require fuel. That's, that's Yahweh saying, this is how I want to interact with Israel. I want to dwell in Israel's midst without requiring anything from Israel, without, well, without having to have anything. He right. requires right. things, of sure. course, yeah. but not because, he requ- not because he has to have it, not because it's necessary for his survival. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a really new concept of deity in the ancient Near Eastern world. Yeah. Let me ask one more question along these lines, and, and then we can move to... Um... Yeah, the, the Psalms and the prophets and how they anticipate Jesus. Uh, I can see what you've said makes makes perfect sense to me. I can see how someone might ask a question. Okay, well, what about sacrifices? You know, the God God didn't need those, but like you said, he did require them. Yes. Um, in, in some ancient Near Eastern uh, religious cults, and, and I don't use a cult, I use a cult in the term technically um, in this setting, not not like you know the Branch Davidians from Waco or right, who, right. that group was. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you mean. You're using yeah, the uh, for the sake of the audience, yeah. Um, a ritual, the ritual of the temple, right? Yeah. So how uh, you know? Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, other ancient Near Eastern you know, practices uh, and practitioners, uh, religious practitioners, they would um, they would offer sacrifices to their god because it was understood that the god or goddess needed those things. Is, is yes. that generally correct? Yeah, well, I mean, Atrahasis is a great example where at the end of the flood story in Atrahasis, Atrahasis, the flood hero in that story, he leaves the ark and he, he builds uh, an altar and sacrifices some of the animals that he took on it. Well, the gods had miscalculated, of course, when they decided to wipe out humanity. They forgot that they needed their sacrifices to eat. And so uh, when he begins to burn the sacrifice, the smell attracts the gods. And Atrahasa says they swarm like flies around it because they were so hungry from having gone so long without sacrifices. Now, now contrast this with Psalm 50. Mm-hmm. In Psalm 50, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to me. Yeah. Now, and I would I would say it's not that the Old Testament rejects the notion that God eats the sacrifice because there's there are texts that indicate he does, yeah. but God doesn't eat them because he needs to. God is a social eater. He eats because <laughs> he eats yeah. because it communicates communion. Mm-hmm. It, it, he eats in order to 
bond with Israel. He doesn't eat because he needs it. And of course, he doesn't literally eat at all. But he uses that imagery of eating because eating was a very social and communion forming activity. And so God, God describes himself as consuming the sacrifice or particularly in Malachi, the sacrifice is described as, as an offering of food mm-hmm. for the deity, right? Yeah. But, but it's not because God needs it for nourishment. It's because God, God simply chooses to eat with us in order to connect, in order to bond, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a, a fascinating tangent. I'm glad, we, I'm glad we tracked that through a little bit. Um, let's turn to the prophets. Yeah. And, uh, and then we can get to the Psalms as well. We mentioned Isaiah 7 at the top of the interview. Um, there are some other themes, right? There's some other theme, big themes that we could look at the prophets. What are maybe you know, one or two of those big themes that we see presented in the prophets, but not ultimately fulfilled until we get to Jesus? Well, sure. Well, let's let's start with one of the most famous ones because it, it actually connects well with Moses. Okay. In my opinion, uh, I may be parting company here with most of my colleagues in Old Testament, but Isaiah fifty-three is well known uh, as a text that many read as anticipating Jesus' sacrificial act on our behalf, and certainly the New Testament will appeal to it as a means of understanding Jesus' sacrificial act in, in many texts. The, uh, I, would, I would argue that Isaiah 53 has often been misunderstood as Davidic. And I don't think it's Davidic. I don't think it makes a lot of sense as a Davidic. So Isaiah 53 has often been read as anticipating a David-like figure, a Davidic kingly figure. Okay. And I, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me that way. When you actually read what Isaiah 53 is talking about, um, his face was so disfigured that he was, you know, people were horrified by his appearance. That's Moses. That's not David. David, I can't ever think of a time that David ever had a visage that frightened people, but I can think of a time when Moses did. Right. Yeah. And so what I think is really happening here is Isaiah 53 is is reiterating and reinforcing the promise of Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like me will Mm -hmm. come. And Isaiah 53 is describing the role that that prophet will play. And I think you have a whole succession of prophets that in some sense approximate that role, Mm -hmm. Isaiah being one of them. Yeah. But none of whom completely exhaust it. Yeah. And so I think this the whole succession of prophets anticipates Christ. Right? Yeah. Because as, as you look at Deuteronomy 34, the closing line of Deuteronomy says a most remarkable thing, never has there arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses. This clearly seems to me to be a late text. That's one one that is written after several prophets have come and gone. Right. Otherwise right. it's meaningless, right? Yeah. So you're, you're looking at a text here that probably is in the, in the final stage of the Pentateuch's redaction that's looking back on the prophetic succession and saying, where's that prophet that actually matches or exceeds Moses? Well, we haven't seen him yet. Yeah. Right. So the whole, the whole line of prophetic succession is moving in a direction that doesn't, within the Old Testament scope anyway, Mm-hmm. And that's true whether Protestant or Catholic, 
uh, doesn't ever reach the, uh, the one who is able to uh, match or exceed what Moses accomplished. Mm-hmm. And we're clearly, we're clearly told to anticipate that in the yeah. Old Testament already. And Isaiah 53, that's why it stumps Jewish and Christian interpreters alike who are trying to understand it in its original context. It's like, who, who is this? Who is the prophet talking about here? Well, the prophet, I think, is talking about this, this, this new Moses that we're waiting for and still, and still hasn't come and that they're hoping will come in the wake of their, uh, of their experience of captivity. Mm-hmm. Now, that, now that they've returned, uh, so the context, I think, in Isaiah 53 is amongst the community of those who have returned and they're like, okay, where is this, where is this promised prophet? Who will, who will take us from here? Yeah. 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 So I think if we think of Isaiah 53 in mosaic terms, that really becomes helpful and we can make even better sense of what the New Testament is really doing with the text. Yeah. I had, I normally had heard Isaiah 53 focusing on either just an individual, right? Or perhaps being a way of, um, a way of speaking about Israel, the nation, and uh, you know those both of those made sense. I hadn't heard of uh, taking taking this as um, as kind of a an, an echo of uh, of Moses uh, types. Yeah, but the way you explained it here, that does make sense, and that you know, especially with this peculiar mention of the of the face that is startling. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can and see he, that. And he sprinkles, he sprinkles the nations with blood. Oh, yeah. The only person I can think of that ever sprinkled Israel with blood was, was Moses. He took the hyssop and sprinkled Moses. Well, this, this prophet like Moses mm-hmm. is going to do the same thing, but he's going to do it to the nations, not just to Israel. Yeah. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot in there. And I think, I think it's, um, uh, it's uh, what's his name? The Old Testament scholar that first put me onto this. Um, oh yeah, Christopher Seitz. Christopher Seitz okay. has an excellent article where he he takes this mosaic reading of Isaiah fifty three. I think it's thoroughly convincing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that 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 really I think helps to set things up for Jesus because Matthew in particular, and I think other New Testament authors as well, really capitalize on Jesus as the prophet like Moses. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, It'll get mentioned in the episode with Jonathan Pennington. Uh, there's a there's a standard work that uh, I think was published maybe in the 80s. Or so it's called uh, the New Moses, a Mathean typology, written yeah. by a gentleman named Dale Allison, who is yeah, I'm familiar is, with Dale Allison's work, his yeah. commentary on Matthew in the in the yeah. international critical commentary. Yeah, yeah. For the for the sake of the audience, um, Dale Dale Allison is is probably still one of the foremost uh, Matthew scholars in, uh, in the English speaking world. And it's a, it's a, I mean, and Dale Allison's particular religious convictions are kind of hard to pin down. Um, but, you know, believer and skeptic alike agree that Dale Allison has really picked up on something that, that seems to be clear uh, yeah. these days. And so that's, yeah, you're right to mention Matthew. Um I, I like that notion. Um, let's turn to the Psalms uh, as we kind of wrap up here. Yeah. There's, there's some obvious Psalms that uh, 
you know, that we can, that we can look at. Uh, but is there, you know, is there, is there something in particular that you would want to mention that really help us kind of see it's like, okay, these are, these are talking about their situation, but they're, they're also anticipating something, something newer and greater and, right. and so on. Well, but when I, when I think about the Psalms anticipating Christ, uh, it's not so much, I'm not really drawn to any particular Psalm so much okay. as I am the story that the Psalms are telling as a whole. Because as, as you look at the way the Psalms have been arranged, as, as I understand them, mm-hmm. the Psalms are really wrestling with the demise of the Davidic dynasty and the crisis that that has brought to, uh, to the faith of Second Temple Judaism. Yeah. And so what, what you see happening as you move through the Psalms is you see this, you see this idealization of David. You know, David is like this ideal king who trusts in Yahweh, who runs to Yahweh as his refuge again and again, and he's delivered over and over again. And he becomes this model of one who, who uh, proves in his own experience Yahweh's fidelity and reliability as a savior. Mm-hmm. But then his dynasty fails. And that, that becomes especially clear in Psalm 89. Yeah. Uh, where it just seems to me that Psalm 89 is just very clearly marking the demise of the Davidic dynasty. It says his, his, his scepter is in the dust, his crown is in the dust, his throne is toppled. And, and is asking God the question, God, where's your steadfast love to your servant David? So there's, if there's a covenantal crisis here because the Davidic covenant seems to be on the line. And, uh, and God seems to have reneged on his commitment to David. Yeah. And then in book, in book uh, four of the Psalter, right after that, you suddenly have this emphasis on Yahweh's kingship. Yahweh's king. Yahweh is king. Mm-hmm. And so you okay, well, does, does this mean that Yahweh is giving up on a human king? Well, you almost would think that until you get to book five. And then in book five, you start picking up on Psalms that once again anticipate a Davidic king, particularly Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. And Psalm 110 is far and away the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. Yeah. And this, and I think this is the reason why. I think a lot of New Testament authors are picking up on this as well. That the Psalms as a whole anticipate a Davidic king who is going to uh, resume the Davidic dynasty. Well, not the dynasty. That would be the wrong way to say it. He's going to resume the promise to David. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to fulfill it by means of dynasty, but by means of an indestructible life, right? As the author of Hebrews says, mm-hmm. there's not going to be a need for a dynasty anymore. But there will be, God is going to keep his promise to David, but in an unexpected way, not through dynastic succession, but through the raising up of a new David, a new David who, because of his eternal life, will never need to be succeeded. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think we've, we've tended to, to divide the Psalms up into Messianic Psalms and non-Messianic Psalms. And I just, I think the Psalms are Messianic. Period. In so general. When, yeah, when yeah. people ask me, um, which Psalms do you think are Messianic? My answer is all of them. Uh, the, yeah. the, I think the Psalter as a whole is telling a story here by its, uh, by its arrangement, by its redactional arrangement that is pointing us towards God's commitment to fulfill his Davidic covenant. So I see the Psalms as wrestling with a tension that, that, that Judah feels. 
between the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. Mm -hmm. Because the Mosaic Covenant seems to have canceled out the Davidic Covenant. The promise of, of exile and the, the consequences of, of Israel's sins have uh, basically resulted in the demise of the Davidic dynasty. But the yeah. Davidic covenant sounded so uh, permanent and so unconditional. So a lot of the laments and a lot of the, the questions of the Psalter are born of this tension that the people feel, you promised this. And yet we feel like you uh, you have reneged. You have uh, you've abandoned it in the interest of fulfilling the covenantal curses of Deuteronomy. So what gives? How do these how do these two covenants? How do they work together? How do we reconcile this? And the Psalter never fully resolves that, mm -hmm. but it does point in the direction of God. Surely God is going to raise up a new David and keep His promises, and that's what God seems to be. Uh, offering to Israel as hope in the Psalter, with particularly with Psalm 110, mm -hmm. they're they're perhaps most explicitly and powerfully. Yeah. Yeah. The Psalter never resolves fully that that issue that concern, and I think what we've been driving at this whole time is that the Old Testament gives us hints here and there of some resolutions, temporary. Um, and, and in some cases fleeting, but never fully resolves these promises that we've seen right. um, until, until we get to Jesus. Yeah. Well, even if you think just for a moment about how the Old Testament ends, regardless of which canonical arrangement you choose. Uh, right, yeah. Choose. Hebrew Bible versus, uh, for right. our listeners, Hebrew Bible versus English Bible, the, the books are arranged slightly differently. That's right. So in the Hebrew Bible, you end with Chronicles. So you end with Judah living under Persian domination. Well, that's not satisfying. That's not what was promised. Yeah. And then in the Christian arrangement, you end with Malachi, where um, we're promised that a new Elijah is coming. Uh, a messenger is on the way to pave the way for something that God is about to do. So either way, the Old Testament ends in this open-ended, anticipatory fashion. Is that by design? Is that intentional? Uh, well, I, I, I tend to think it is. Uh, you know, um, Selhammer, who is, who, is, who is an Old Testament scholar that I don't often agree with, but occasionally I do. And on, on this point, I think he's right. He talks about a canonicler. He says, not only do we have a chronicler, we also have a canonicler. So he see, he's seasonal activity, even at the canonical level. Well, that seems to me to be pretty spot on. Yeah. Surely we have activity going on that has arranged the parts of the canon. Eventually that it's come to us in the way that it has, whether in the Jewish tradition or the Christian tradition. Either way, though, there's, there's, there's anticipation of something more. God's work with Israel is not finished. Yeah. That's, that's clear whether you're, you're reading the Hebrew Bible with Chronicles as the concluding book or whether you're reading it uh, in the Protestant Christian tradition with Malachi mm -hmm. as the concluding book. More is, there is more to come. And Judaism has, has reflected their instinct of this with the rabbinic literature and with the subsequent literature that, that uh, the Hebrew Bible generated for them. So even though they don't have a New Testament, they certainly have 
uh, subsequent traditions and literature that they that they see rounding out and bringing closure to an open-ended Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Christians, of course, have the New Testament, which functions in much the same way. But that's that's where we that's where we are at the end of the Old Testament. We are we are looking at something unfinished. And that's that's pretty explicit, I think, in the Old Testament that that there needs to be an intervention of God here to bring closure to the situation. The stage is set. You know, Judah has returned from captivity. A new temple has been built. But we haven't yet seen the glory of God fill this temple like he did Solomon's. We have not yet seen um, an indigenous kingship to restore Israel to political independence. We've not seen any of that yet. And so uh, there's longing. There's a great sense of longing at the end of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Youngblood, this has been a treat. We have had a whirlwind tour of the Old Testament. Indeed. Is there any, uh, any kind of parting, uh, parting lines or words of wisdom you'd like to share with us as we uh, wrap up this morning? Not, th- not that I can think of. Uh, I think for, for the questions you've asked, uh, I've, I've pretty well shared, uh, at least in broad strokes, yeah. what I think are the most essential elements. So yeah. thank you for having me. Happy to. That, uh, Like I said, I'll put uh, links uh, in the description below to uh, folks who can, uh, who can find your, uh, your commentary on Jonah in the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary in the Old Testament series, and also the video lectures that you mentioned as well. And uh, in, in, any other place where folks might be able to go to find uh, find some of your work? Do you have a YouTube channel or something, <laughs> anything like that? Well, they can could, they could certainly search for me on YouTube because when, I, when I've spoken at various churches, uh, it seems inevitably I get recorded and posted on YouTube. Yeah, okay. Whether I, whether I grant permission or not. <laughs> so. Uh, I have run across, I've been surprised sometimes at what at what comes up. So you can look for me there. I have an academia.edu um, mm. page as well, yeah. where I post some things. And of course, um, Harding's has an, Harding has an author's works uh, website uh, attached to our library where I keep right. some of my works as well. So some of the stuff that I haven't really published, just papers I've written, yeah. um, those are available there. Some of my published works that are a little bit older might be available there too. Mm-hmm. And uh, also mentioning Harding, I believe there is, um, isn't there an archive of, uh, of past l- lectureship presentations that uh, there, there, there are, to? yes. Yeah. And so if, yeah, if there anybody's is an interested of, of past, and, and I'll be in there a few times. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're generally a staple in, uh, in Harding's lectureships uh, along, you know, doing things along these lines, kind of what we've right. done, what we've done today. All right. right. Kevin, thank you, sir. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.